scripture reading is Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. If you are able, please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. And if you are unable to stand, join us now in lifting up your hearts. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Karma wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are full that although they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given the commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Need to stand or sit in silence under a word like that. How do you process those words? How do you even begin to engage with our minds so fully formed by the New Testament, so fully formed by a consideration of Christ and the Prince of Peace and the God of Love uh, and all of that. How do we sit under words like the Lord is a jealous and avenging God? He's avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance 
on his adversaries. He keeps wrath for his enemies. When we read through the Psalms, are you drawn to the ones of the Psalms of Ascent? I lift mine eyes up to the hills from whence does my help come. My help comes in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not sleep and he will not slumber. He will not cause my foot to stumble. We drawn there. The Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. Or are you drawn to the prayers that say, Lord, break the teeth of your enemies. Lord, cause them to lick the dust before you. I would tend and venture to think that you, as with so many of us, are drawn uh, to the beauty of God as this pastoral shepherd, a, a loving father, a, a God who is of peace and sends Christ in the world to make peace with mankind through him. And then we come to the Nahums of the world, which ironically, the name Nahum means comfort. <laughs> but somehow God, in his grand divine irony, chose a man named Comfort to pronounce a three-chapter oracle against, and it is a war oracle. That's what the word actually begins there, and a, a war oracle against Nineveh. It is a declaration by a man who is heralding the coming of a mighty king in battle. And he's speaking to the most powerful entity in the known world, Assyria, to Sennacherib, to all of the rulers of Nineveh, this greatest city of greatest cities. This is the, the compendium. This is the second book of Jonah, if you would. We looked at Jonah a few weeks ago when God said to Nineveh before, I have something against you, and in 40 days you're going to be overturned. But the king then repented, and all of Nineveh repented, and the Lord relented. And so he gave them peace, and there was peace for a 100 years. But what happened in the ensuing time was Nineveh repented of their repentance. They realized, you know, we, we're not really worried about that guy, God. And we're not worried about Jonah. And so we're going to go about doing what we do. And what we do is destroy anybody and everybody who's in front of us because we're the most powerful kingdom in all of the world and our uh, kings are gods and we can do whatever we want. And they even came and tried to invade uh, Israel. They already taken Judah and they came south to stand against Israel and they besieged Jerusalem. It was, it was sort of like uh, in my uh, dorm room, I had a roommate uh, who had a boa constrictor. Now, if you know anything about Bill McCutcheon, you know Bill McCutcheon hates snakes. And this was a big one, and it was right near my bed. And we would have Friday night parties where you would, um, you would set wagers on how long the gerbil or the rat or the mouse would make it as he had to feed. Boa constrictors have to eat. And there was one, I think I've told you this story, there was one particular brazen little rodent that came up to the big snake and bit it on the nose. I remember thinking even then, this isn't going to end well for you. And it didn't. 
Nineveh was the little rodent that came to the God of the universe and kicked it in the nose, trying to take God's holy city, Jerusalem, besieging it and saying, we don't really care. We don't think you can do anything about it. And the people of God were suffering. Evil was moving forward. If you do a study, and I don't have time at all uh, to do justice, both to the greatness of Nineveh. We talked about it a little bit with Jonah. It was a grand city, the greatest city uh, ever developed in uh, modern time in some sense. Uh, Walls were impenetrable. They were so deep. Canal systems built along the river. No way that they could be defeated And they knew it. And they were so secure in it that they knew that they could do anything and everything they wanted to do and nobody would fight back. The stories from other civilizations and even in uh, one of the great uh, archaeological finds that propelled uh, Christianity's historicity forward was in the middle of the last, in the 1860s, when they found Nineveh about 40-some miles outside of modern-day Mosul in Iraq. They found it, and everybody before then had said, well, there is no such city of Nineveh. You can't find Nineveh. See, the Bible's not accurate. It talks of Nineveh. Well, they found Nineveh, and they found tablets, and they found inscriptions in Nineveh of the emperors and the kings of Assyria. And there are kids in the room, and so I can't give full depiction of the evil that was perpetrated by those men and their people against other human beings. That their walls were wallpapered with human skin. That what they did to other people while still alive is unspeakable. And they relished in it. And the people of God in the Psalms and elsewhere were going, how long? How long, God, will you allow evil to run rampant in the world? We know you're good, but are you just? We know you're a king, but are you a king who is willing to roll up your sleeve and show your arm and do something against evil in the world? And we look around now, and we don't have to look far to be overwhelmed with the affront of evil within the world today. Every moment you pick up your phone, every moment you look at your tablet, every moment you look at your computer and your news, there is a news feed telling you of some evil that has been perpetrated within the world and your heart breaks and inside of you something is beginning to be elicited and what you do is you're realizing, I'm angry. Then you go, oh, Christians can't be angry. Oh, no, I've got to repent of my anger. No, I shouldn't be angry. And oh, and you're conflicted and you go, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do about the Ninevehs of the world today? And I'm not talking, and don't try to, it it is the Moscow's of the world and the leadership there. It is uh, the Beijing's in in some sense. It it, it is the evil of, of countries and of governments that are perpetrating evil within the world and the destruction of human life, even in our own country, uh, that legalizes the the murder of, of children in the womb. It is evil in those governments. But it's a general evil. 
that's all around. We go, what do we do with Nineveh? And here's what we, here's what we find. We ask this question. Verse 1-9. It's translated a little differently in your Bible, but there's an alternate translation that I'd put before you today. The alternate translation is this. Instead of what do you plot against the Lord, the alternate translation that I think is quite accurate is this question instead. What do you think about the Lord? Given all of these things, what do you think about the Lord? Well, that question is answered in the first chapter. We're not going to look at chapters 2 and 3. I would encourage you to look at chapters 2 and 3 and go find a good Bible, a study Bible or something that will tell you that every single thing that was predicted of Nineveh came to fruition. It said a flood was going to overtake Nineveh, and you're like, flood didn't overtake it. The Babylonians and the Medes overtook it. And you would then read, and you would recognize that in the Babylonian and Median uh, histories, it was the floods of the spring that overflowed, overflowed the, the sides of the Tigris, and they came and they went underneath those massive walls uh, of Nineveh, and the massive walls of their weight now sitting in basically pluff mud. We know what that is. And you can't have an 18-foot wide wall wall standing on pluff mud, it will sink and it will fall in and an entire section of the wall sunk by the floods and fell in and the Babylonians and the Medes entered in. And you would recognize, you say, but it says it was burned. It wasn't burned, it was flooded. Well, you would also read that the king at the time knew of an ancient oracle that said that only Nineveh would fall if the gods of the rivers rose up. And he recognized that the god of the river rose up. And so he gathered all of his family and all of his possessions and created the largest funeral pyre that had been created to date. And he burned himself and everybody in it. And so when they found Nineveh, they found ashes in the middle of it. Everything that you see in chapters 1, 2, and 3 came to fruition exactly. It speaks of the fall of Thebes uh, in Egypt. Uh, it, is, it is a picture of God saying, I am the God not only of history, I am the God of history yet to come. And I control yesterday, today, and every single day. But what do you think about him? And I'm going to give you two things, and we're really just going to uh, touch on them. There's no way this morning to fully uh, invest ourselves in them. But the first is this, that the Lord is a just God, and that the Lord is a good God. What do you think about the Lord? Here's what we know about the Lord. The Lord is a just God, and the Lord is a good God. God's justice seems incompatible with his goodness. It seems incompatible with the New Testament teachings on Christian love. This, though, my friends, is a false dichotomy. It does damage to the person of the Lord. To be unaffected by evil, to be unaffected by sin that is coming against someone or something you love is actually a strong indicator that you don't truly love them. To see evil coming against somebody or something you love actually brings up within you justice. You don't have to be an Enneagram 8 to be moved in anger towards justice and want right within the world. You need to be a loving person who says this, I, out of my love, want justice. I want to protect. I want whatever pursuing 
my loved one, what's ever pursuing something that I care for, I want that to be stopped. And it speaks of God that he is slow to anger, but it doesn't say that he is void of anger. That idea of slow to anger means that he is calculated in it. Unlike, and it is given against human anger, we speak about a blind rage. We speak about being consumed by our anger, that when we get angry, we lash out and there is collateral damage all around. God, who is slow to anger, is exacting in his anger so that there is no collateral damage. It is a precision strike. Nahum uses four words uh, to speak of God's anger uh, in verses 1, two, or 2, and 3. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, keeps his wrath for his enemies, slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and a storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He says the Lord is furious. That word furious presupposes love. It expresses an emotional subjective action. It expresses his zealous concern for the welfare of those whom he loves. Then it says he's avenging. It, it appears three times uh, in this. But this is not taking revenge, but rather the executing of retribution, paying back someone what they deserve. It expresses a volitional action an adjective rather than a subjective response. It speaks of him being wrathful. This word wrathful suggests a change in God's attitude. The word comes from a root meaning to cross over. It is the same root of the word when the Israelites crossed over Jordan. The word suggests that God crossed over from his typical attitude, his typical predisposition towards tenderness and compassion, and he crossed over towards judgment because his compassion compelled him to do so. And anger used there was the idea used double of God being double-nostriled, flushed with anger, flushed with anger. What parent doesn't know that kind of anger when something happens to your child? That they're bullied, or that they get cancer, or that they're wounded, whether they're hurt or addiction takes root, and there's a double-nostrilled anger towards evil to go, I've got to defend them. The opposite of love, my friends, is not anger. It is passivity. It is inaction. What we're seeing here is a very important revelation of God's anger because it is the reverse of what usually characterizes our human anger. God is angry. And we want a God who is angry, don't you? Don't you want a God who hates injustice more than you do? Who doesn't sit passively by and say, well, I spun this whole thing up. And I'm just the wonderful clockmaker who's going to sit back and let it tick its way into oblivion. But no, there's a God who knows you, we're going to look at that, who cares for you so much that he says, I'm going to come and defeat all of yours and all of my enemies. Friends, we want that God. 
if we were to pause now and in absolute silence, and if God were so kind as to let us hear the very worship that is going on all around us in the heavenly places, you would hear songs of justice. How long, O Lord, the martyrs under the throne cry and sing the imprecatory psalms. How long until you break the teeth? How long? The blood of Abel crying out for justice. God is a just God. And we could leave here today and be just fine, but it doesn't leave us just there. It says he is just, but he is good. He is a God of justice. He is a God of vengeance. He is a God who pursues his enemies, but he does it from a place of goodness. Look at verse 7. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. Yahweh is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Three simple things from that. The Lord is good. The Lord is our stronghold. And the Lord knows us. The Lord is good. It's just, an, it's just a statement. It's an accepted fact by the writer uh, speaking of God from God to the people saying, I want them to know, though, that unlike Sennacherib, unlike the leaders of Nineveh, uh, all those who appeared to be just, those who appeared to have their system of law, I am a God who is a just God, but I'm a good God. There is nothing capricious within me. There is nothing that is random within that, but I am a God who comforts in his goodness. It is his goodness, my friends, that moves him to act against evil and to protect us. And then the Lord says that he is a stronghold, an interesting juxtaposition of the stronghold that the Lord Yahweh is in comparison to the seemingly impenetrable stronghold of Nineveh. Remember, Nahum proclaimed these things when Nineveh, it speaks of, when Nineveh was at its fullest. Verse 12, though they are at full strength. What he's saying is they're not really a stronghold. God is our stronghold. He is the one who invites us there, come to the Lord who is our tower, come to the Lord who is our strength, come to him when evil is around, come to him uh, in that. So here would be my question for you on those first two. Do you believe that he's good? Do you believe that he's good? Remember the first lie of Satan was an indictment on the goodness of God. He basically said, he's not good. If he was good, he would have given you that tree. You can't trust him. Do you believe that he's good? And then do you believe that he's your stronghold? More than any other stronghold. We live in a marketing society that says, here's a stronghold for you. Here's a stronghold for you. When things go bad, here's a stronghold for you. Everything's a stronghold. Uh, it's, the, it's the retirement company that says, hey, just follow this little green line, and it's going to take you to your stronghold. And that stronghold is your 401k. That stronghold is all of your investments. 
The stronghold that we say is our house, is our good looks, it's our body, it's whatever it is. We run to strongholds in this world. And so my question to you is, what is the stronghold that you are running to other than God? And then take it and hold it up against him and see if it's better than Nineveh. Because if it's not, and by the way, we live in a day and a time when we need to consider, by the way, even our country. To say, oh, but I'm an American, I'm a this, I have my strength here. Be careful of kingdoms being your stronghold. Next month, a large portion of you will celebrate and a large portion of you will agonize at the results of the election. Friends, that's not our stronghold. Washington, D.C. is not our stronghold. It is a city that was built in a marsh. Interesting. So was Nineveh. And cities built on marshes fall. And so do kingdoms. Are you building your stronghold upon the solid rock of Christ or upon the shifting sand? And then the last thing he says there is the Lord knows us. Not only is he good, not only is he a stronghold, he knows us. What an incredible word. Again, just a word of intimacy, a word of great care. It is the word yada. It is the word of a man and a woman who know one another in marital, marital fetal intimacy, of knowing one another. It is fully Adam and Eve standing before God with nothing in between them and being fully known by him. It's God saying to you, I am good and I'm your stronghold and I know you. I know the Ninevehs that are coming up against you. I know the threats that are there. And I am offering to you a place of refuge. And I want you to come. I almost used the wrong word. I almost said he invites you to come to him as, a strong, as, his, as your stronghold and refuge. If you go over to Matthew eleven twenty eight, you read those very familiar words. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and I will give you rest. I will be your refuge. I will be the place within the storm. I will be that. Friends, that is not an invitation. It's a subpoena. An invitation you can take or not. The T-shirt that Michael said he wanted to buy in uh, Gatlinburg a few months ago. Sorry I'm late. I didn't want to come. It's an invitation. Take it or leave it. What the God of the universe is doing here is a subpoena that says, come to me. If you go anywhere else, you will not find what you are looking for. And so, friends, as we come and we wrap up what we know about God, we know that he is good, and we know that he is just. And then it says in verse 15, this very familiar verse, Behold, upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, keeps your feast, O Judah, fulfill your vows. And that is a quote from Isaiah 52, 7. See, preachers throughout all the years have borrowed from other preachers' sermons. It's what we do. He borrowed from Isaiah 
And then Paul borrowed from Isaiah uh, in Romans chapter 10. When he said the beauty of those who come from the mountains bringing good news, he was speaking of Christ, the long-awaited promise to Messiah, preaching to those who needed to hear. It was a good news of the gracious goodness of God. Nahum used the verse as the good news of the gracious justice of God. For when we come to this table, it is a lion and a lamb. It is a roaring lion, and it is a paschal lamb. We come this morning to a God who is both good and just, just and good. We come this morning celebrating the good justice of God and his just goodness, and the place where they all come together is in Christ. For we all stand like Ninevites, before God. It says all are at enmity with him, except those who come and accept the subpoena to come to Christ, because Christ is the one who took on the full wrath of God. He is the one who was overwhelmed by the flood. He is the one who was destroyed. He is the one who did all of that, who, who took on that unmitigated wrath of God, because God is so good that he said, I am going to save for myself a people, and they won't have to face this. And I'm so just that somebody has to. And it'll be my son. Friends, this isn't a scare tactic. It's simply truth. And the truth is this. This good, just Christ will return again. But the next time he returns it is in good justice, but it will not be a good day for all of those who stand outside of him. And so the invitation for you who are here today, who has ears, listen. While you have breath, come. The invitation of the good and just God is to come to him and let Christ absorb that for you. And let him be your refuge and strength. Let's pray. Father, you terrify us. And you should. You speak to us like you did to Job. Gird yourself up like a man and step outside. Our knees tremble. You show us your greatness. You show us who you are. You bear your arm. But then you take us like John into the very picture of heaven, and we see a lion and a lamb together in Christ. And our terror becomes honor and love and affection. For our Father is our King. Our King is our Father. The Avenger is our Savior. Our Savior is the Avenger. Oh, how our hearts rejoice within us. And we come. So draw us now, our great warrior King, to your good justice and your just goodness. In Christ we pray. Amen.
this lion and the lamb, Jesus stood before his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed and he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat it. In a similar fashion, after the meal, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink it. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the fact that I'm coming back one day until I come back one day. So find refuge in him today, my friends. This is not a Presbyterian table. This is Christ's table. And therefore, if you have professed your faith in Christ and you're not walking in an open, unrepentant lifestyle before him, you're invited to come. It doesn't mean you're in a perfect life. It means you're in a repentant life of always running back to him. If you don't know Christ as your king and savior today, our invitation is for you to wait, for you to, to talk to somebody. Talk to me afterwards. Talk to anybody afterwards and say, I don't want to stand like Nineveh. I want to bend the knee today. And come, and the Lord is drawing you to himself. As you come, you're going to come down the middle. Take the elements. There is a, an element there if you need um, gluten-free. Then take it back and sit. Sitting with your own heart, sitting with your thoughts. The team will be singing. You can join in or just let it be sung over you. But now let's come to the feast today. Friends, the peace of the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. The gift of God for the people of God. I'll invite the ushers to come forward and then let us begin the feast together.